Makers Podcast by MyraBase.com with Orsolya Bőten. Hey, hey, again! It was a long time when I uh, posted an episode at the last time. Uh, so, sorry for this. I prepared with different uh, episodes. Uh, I invited different guests and... Um, This spring was a bit, a bit busy time for everyone, so I needed to postpone the publish dates. But finally, we are here, so uh, the 10th episode is out. Uh, my guest speaker was Michael Boyley, who is an American citizen, but he actually is living in Austria in Vienna. And he is a regenerative designer, which means that um, Uh, he also understands the stakeholders, the different pains and gains. Uh, he creates uh, design sprint workshops, and he has, a, from my point of view, he's a, a fresh and new perspective regarding sustainability and circularity. Uh, or uh, I quote his words: "So whatever we call it, it doesn't matter the name. Uh, what matters that." Um, how we include include people in the process uh, yeah and so let's start to listen uh, this conversation three big questions okay my name is mike boyle i i am an american citizen who's been living in vienna for the vast majority of his adult life and uh, I am on to the fifth leg of my career. My fourth leg is something that was started not too long ago, and that was academia. I've been teaching at different universities here in Austria. Uh, and very soon, I will be able to, to uh, dedicate myself 100% towards activism, and I'm looking forward to that very much. Wow, it sounds good. Uh, yeah, then what, what am I doing? Because that was one of the questions you asked. Uh, I am working on various projects here in Austria and beyond. And looking at specifically on a project level, I am concentrating on three things. First one is a concept that's called uh, Kreislaufplatz, which is restoring the, our faith in our community where we come up with different initiatives to strengthen the closed loops that we're looking for within our own community. That would be number one. The second one is tied to material flow analysis, which I believe is something that we overlook very much within the circular economy discussions. And I think since we've, we've talked last, that um, I've gotten a little bit closer as to where I want to go ahead and take that. I'm working with an individual who was tied to an initiative that we had not too long ago, tied to circular, to, to uh, regenerative design sprints, and we'll be looking at various materials in performing a material flow analysis all the way from the mining. We're looking at material with looking at mining materials, looking at the mining, the actual exchange of, of funding to the actual manufacturing and then eventually to the consumer and then what we do with it 
and it's not quite clear what the material will be. I'm thinking about cobalt because I think cobalt would be quite interesting with the intention of actually going ahead and establishing a prototype that we can use to clearly identify what the what pain points are looking at e-waste. And that's number two. Third one is one that I've run across quite often tied to organizational problems that we have in identifying who can make a difference within the circular economy. Very often we will have a whole supply chain of individuals who are performing certain transactions. They have no clue what's happening upstream and they have no interest what takes place downstream. And so I'm looking to come up with new models that make sure that all of the actors within the supply chain or the value chain is what we're trying to strive for. I have an underly underlying agreement to to go ahead and reach circularity goals within each individual transaction. And I don't know how I'm going to do this, but this is what I've set as a goal for 2021. Wow, yeah, they sound so great. And uh, why do you do all of this? What is your inner motivation? Because I want to know if I can. Very simply, um, I think it's doable. I think I can do it. But I've learned a long time ago that the only way you can really find out whether you could do something or not is to actually go ahead and try it. And so the, the two possible results that could take place either, uh, sorry, three, either you make it happen or you fail completely or something in the middle. And I feel very confident that this is doable. I have a good idea in my head of what this should look like. So the question is whether this vision I have in my head can be realized. And that's what's driving me. And uh, you mentioned circular economy. I am curious, what does it mean exactly to you? Because there are a bunch of um, definition and different organizations with different point of view about circularity. And why do you think that it's important? Um, I agree with that assessment. If you ask 100 people what they consider circular economy to be, they'll probably come up with 101 definitions. And in fact, I've kind of moved away from this to the description of a circular economy because in essence, you and I know that it's not circular at all. It's actually much more of an ecosystem. And so the idea of circularity is a bit of a misnomer. And in fact, it only substantiates this idea of transactional thinking. In other words, something that we can actually go ahead and trace is something that we as human beings feel comfortable with. Whereas if we start talking about ecosystems or system thinking, well, that's not something so clear cut and we don't feel comfortable with it. So I've moved towards a new way of describing it, and I talk about regenerative design. And regener regenerative really pretty much talks about this the same idea of that of what you're able to take out, that you're go ahead and you're able to bring it back. Furthermore, within the construct of a of the regenerative design, the the actual growth as such 
stays within the actual system. And with that, we are able to go ahead and make sure that we were creating something that's very full of life and it can live on its own. And so to, to close the loop here, to give you an answer to your question, I think uh, circular economy is coming up with new models that enable us to to establish ways that things just kind of work and in a, in a very natural way. And natural means that, you know, when we look at nature, nature doesn't really complicate itself. Nature has a way of just kind of doing what it does. And we as human beings have this, this funny idea that we need to make things complicated because complicated means better. Whereas actually complicated just means complicated. It definitely doesn't mean better. And there's no value in complication. But if we were able to come up with a system that was to react to things naturally, playing on the word of nature, that allows for all those, those needs and wants to be accumulated in this construction, then that would be my ideal state of the circular economy, that we're able to create incentives throughout the entire chain that everybody feels comfortable with, and it just kind of works. And you mentioned that uh, you uh, see a, a big challenge in the supply chain when we t talk about uh, or circularity or economy in generally. And you say that uh, the actors didn't don't see each other's role or activities. And how do you see the role of regenerative design in this process, in practice? Maybe if we start looking at the current state first, might be the best way of approaching it. Within the way that we do things today, Everything is transaction-based, so that means that if you and I are going ahead and performing some sort of deal, quote-unquote, then I would offer you something you would either agree or disagree, and then we would come to inclusion and shake hands. But, of course, that individual transaction does not de deploy, sorry, de display the entire uh, composite of what we're trying to do. The, there are, are effects tied to our transaction, the one that you and I go ahead and complete, that affect everybody upstream and downstream. Now you might go ahead and say downstream is easy. So you can say what we do affects downstream, you can easily trace it. But I would argue, I would argue that it affects those people upstream because they had ulterior motives for making the decisions that they made upstream that can be sabotaged by the, the, uh, the, the agreement that you and I make. And so the real problem is that we have a number of actors that are based upon this, the way that things are structured, don't, are not compelled to think about what's taking place upstream. They don't need to consider what's taking place downstream. And because we as human beings are, I think we're hardwired to think transactionally, that 
we don't even care and nobody's asking us to care, so we care even less. But there are inherent problems because that is to say that what we do does not affect anybody else. And that's a lie. That is a pure lie. And now if we let's go ahead and close the loop what I talked about earlier tied to nature. Now if something happens in nature, if you do A, that has an effect on B. Now you might not necessarily be able to easily trace what takes place between A and B, but you cannot negate that those things are taking place. Now, doesn't that take place within human beings? We see this on a, a ecology is easy. Let's look at it from a societal perspective. If we make a decision to do something here within our community, now we might think, oh, this is a great solution. And we think about ourselves but we eliminate the needs of so many other stakeholders in our society that are going to be affected by the decision that we make that we might feel great about the decision, but actually we're making life much worse for other members of our society. And we've been doing a great job of that lately. We, I think we've become masters of that one. Now, within this, within this idea of regenerative design, that means there is a, a, a clear focus on what we're trying to accomplish. The, then everything that we do should be regenerative. It should be able to grow back in whatever growing back might be defined. Now, grow back might look much different depending on, on the, the actual transactions per se. If we're talking about uh, ecological or, or something that, that's agricultural, it's quite easy. If we're talking about human beings, it becomes a little bit more difficult. But if we want to create societies that, that grow, grow back, that means we need to look at all the stakeholders in our society. We have to understand what their needs are. We need to be able to understand what are the effects of our decision. I think we need to make that decision process more inclusive than we do today. And we need to constantly check whether there's something we miss because we are human beings, we can make mistakes and we should allow ourselves to go ahead and say, that's not the direction we want to go to. We want to go ahead and change that. We need to be able to do all of these things. So in that definition of what regenerative design is, it, it needs to, it, it should encompass all of those things I've just talked about. Can we say which is a lot? Can we say that uh, being uh, or using regenerative design means uh, being resilient? That's assuming that all components, looking from a human perspective, that all components in our society are resilient. I will go. You know what? I'm going to go one step further. I'm I'm going to say that because of the because of the policy that we have been following so far as human beings that we have we have made it very very difficult for certain parts of nature to be completely resilient that does not mean that over a longer period of time that nature can come back i have full faith in it but the problem is we won't see it in our lifetimes and it's going to be way too late so can it be resilient? To get back to your question, can it be resilient? The answer is yes. Is that sufficient or did the time span, I think that was a real 
key component of what you're asking me in this question, which you didn't mention, is time. In the time of resiliency, that's something that we need to look at. And the problem is we have no time. And, and furthermore, we have the ability as human beings to help nature along. And now I'm not telling, I'm not professing for us to manage nature. My countrymen are very good at that, Americans, and saying this is the way that we manage nature. But I think there are certain things that we can do to push the process along a little bit and, and a proper use of technology. And so uh, re resilience, resilience is... Um, it's a word we use quite often these days, especially tied to COVID-19. We see that resilience is something that is very much tied to the condition that you find yourself to be in. I'll give you an, an example. It's quite interesting because I've been putting a lot of things together, looking at how things were a year ago when we didn't, we never thought that, that the pandemic would go on this long. And our, and we had more of an, of, a, of an optimism that we would be able to get past this much more than we do today. And so if we were to compare our attitude a year ago to that of what we have now, then you can go ahead and, and raise the question of resilience. Resilience is the word that really comes into play. Were we more resilient back then? Were we more resilient than now? Does the conditions have an effect on resilience? I don't have a clear answer to this, but I do think that they all have an effect on it. So taking that example, taking that example and looking at it from a a regenerative design perspective, then this is all somewhat conditional and we need to be able to understand the conditions that we're actually evaluating to better understand to what degree, back to your question, whether we're resilient or not. Because I think that we, there is no clear answer and we need to be able to look at it in context. And I never thought of that before. So thank you very much for that question. You're welcome. And uh, regarding regenerative design, uh, if someone wants to apply in practice the methods, how they should start it? They... First of all, first off, they need to be able to question those things that they've believed so long. I keep running across this over and over again. This is one of the biggest problems because we think we've always believed this. That means it has to be true. That is a fallacy. Just because we believed it doesn't mean it's true. So to what degree can we perform what's often called critical thinking? Can we, can we go ahead and deploy critical thinking? In a, and I think by nature, critical thinking is very positive. I know in certain cultures, again, I'm referring to the United States, that critical thinking is seen as being negative. But I see this as being extremely positive because we're interested in solving the right problem instead of actually going ahead and looking at the symptoms. So the, the first step would be to what degree can you facilitate critical thinking? The second step would be... Do you have a good 
overview as to what the real problems are, the root cause of the problems, because we as human beings, again, have this wonderful, this wonderful talent of always going ahead and concentrating on the symptoms and not really looking at the root cause, because the symptoms are apparent and the symptoms are very transactional. And that means we don't have to think that much. And so it makes much makes much easier for us. But that doesn't really solve anything. Sometimes we have to work on the symptoms. You and I will need to go ahead and work on something like the, the 1.5 degrees to go ahead and reduce the global warming. But in essence, the global warming is not the problem. The global warming is the symptom. The actual problem is the way that we've been doing things for a number of years that needs to be corrected. So if we keep thinking this is what we need to do to solve the problem of global warming, we're not really looking at the problem. So again, back to your question, what do we need to do from a um, regenerative design perspective? We need to be able to get to the root cause and understanding what are the real problems that need to be solved for us to actually go ahead and manage things much better. We need to be able to create an environment where we can make mistakes because we don't know. And within a scientific way of looking at things, that means if we take the empirical way of looking at matters, that means where we come up with a hypothesis, we're able to either prove or disprove our hypothesis, and we go through this uh, complete cycle that is also very normal. So are we able to go ahead and take scientific processes to go ahead and prove or disprove that of what we currently know? That would also be very important in the regenerative design. Are we inclusive? Are we able to go ahead and take all of the the input from all of the stake, all the meaningful stakeholders within our, let's say all the stakeholders, within the, the case study that we're actually in, uh, evaluating to ensure that there, we're able to come up with a healthy balance between all of those different impulses that need to be taken into consideration. Are we able as regenerative designers to remove ourselves from the here and now and make sure that there is no bias that we as human beings have so that we can ensure that the re results that are actually being produced are as true as possible and come up with with uh, methods to ensure that that we we keep bias at bay because we as human beings are biased so that would be something also very important um, that we realize that we alone cannot uh, solve these problems that so we need a lot of we need input from a number of different stakeholders because only by coming with different opinions and being inclusive are we able to look at the entire picture these are only the conditions of being a, a research designer uh sorry a regenerative designer and then i think they actually go ahead and perform the exercises and um in coming up with probabilistic models because we never really know 100% and it could change. And so we want to make sure that we're giving true information and that can only be handed up probabilistically. Sorry, that took a little bit longer. <laughs> it's okay. 
And uh, when you talk about stakeholders, how do you see uh, them? How we can uh, find out who is our stakeholder and uh, what is uh, their role or their um, relation between each other? Mm -hmm. There's a very easy definition of a stakeholder. Uh, it's anyone who is positively or negatively affected by that of what you're actually looking at. Now, the first thing that we always need to take into consideration, do they realize they're stakeholders? Very often they don't because they do not have the insight into that of what we're actually looking into. That would be number one. So if, if you think they could be affected by it, then they are a stakeholder. The second one is understanding that all stakeholders are not the same, that we have um, the, the element of power that comes into play or influence that comes into play and they're not the same. You might have power, but you might not, sorry, power and interest. You might not necessarily have an interest, but you're powerful. That would be another element to take into consideration. Within that solution, the solution that we come up with at the end, we always have winners and losers. And so can we go ahead and make this process inclusive so that at the that we have some sort of consensus between all of the different stakeholders that they we have a commitment at once that decision's made so we can move forward and there is no going back. And it's all easier said than done. But I'm afraid that there is no silver bullet and we have to go ahead and take that type of approach. Unfortunately, it's not done often enough. And you mentioned inclusivity. What, how do you see what's the biggest challenge uh, to um, being inclusive? We don't see it in our interest. In other words, if we are privileged within our society, then we don't see the necessity of actually taking into the interest of those people who are not so privileged because we think that we have the power and they're going to have to live with it. But the fact is, if COVID, if COVID-19 taught us something, it, it had to have been that we're all affected by the same affliction. And I would hope that it would be a lesson that we would all take with us Although I'm not too confident on that one, I see this quite often within the circular economy community that, and I'm referring to where I am and who I'm dealing with. So this, I would never make the claim that this is universal. So it's very, very much tied to the condition that I find myself in, that we're very much a clique. We are coming primarily from, maybe not necessarily directly from academia, but at the, the academia part is very strong. That we look at things very much from a theoretical perspective. In other words, we don't necessarily always see the necessity to go ahead and test these concepts but rather we feel very comfortable in leaving them to theory. We use a lot of verbiage that may or may not be understood by other stakeholders. 
again, following that definition I gave you earlier, we do not concern ourselves too much with whether the other stakeholders feel spoken to or not. In other words, if they understand it, fine. If they not, if they don't, then that's their problem. And I've learned a lot over the last couple of years about how misconstrued we have this, this structure within our society where what we say, how it's understood, and how much of how much how much of a of a role is actually depicted in that of what we said, what what we say, um, very disturbing actually for me in the beginning, because I started realizing that I was saying things that I thought, yeah, these are important and people need to believe them, but they realized they that the words I were I was using was a, an instrument of power. In other words, they would say, oh, you are just showing us how, how smart you are and how stupid we are. And that really got me to think. That got me to think about how we present things, how, how sanctimonious we can be, and And a lot of things that we, we've thought for a long time are wrong. And we need to do something about it. And part and it's not easy. And that's one of the problems. If we talk to people in other levels, I don't like the word level, but different stakeholders in society, and they might not necessarily be looking at things from, from the same vantage point for whatever reason it may be, to what degree do we have the understanding, the capability, and the patience, all three, to go ahead and build some sort of dialogue? And I've noticed that it's a, it's a real issue. There's, we have this problem in society that uh, people like to play victims because that way they can be held accountable and they don't have to look at themselves in the mirror. That means you always have an enemy, you always have a perpetrator if you're a victim. And yeah, it makes it really, really difficult to be inclusive. But I keep thinking, what's the alternative? The alternative means that we keep going on our way that is going to be completely dysfunctional, that we're not gonna come up with solutions for the, the vast majority of our population. We do not they do not feel empowered, which is a big thing for me. People need to feel empowered. And to get to that empowerment stage, that means you have to be able to overcome a bunch of different things. But we don't have a choice. If we want to really solve these problems that are bigger than you and me, then we need to get all of the stakeholders involved. And that means that we need to take the time. We have no choice. We need to take the time to make sure that they are on board, that they feel like they're equal partners. And this is also very, very important. They feel that they're equal partners and that we can have a dialogue where we are on the same level. And that means to get to that, to, to that inclusiveness, we got a lot of things to do. We got a lot of work to do. And that is the reason why it's so easy for us to talk about ecology 
but it's so difficult to talk about the social parts because the social takes a lot of work. Ecology, we pretty much know how nature works. And if we wanted to, I don't think, I bet if you and I and maybe get some other people together, and if we were to go ahead and sit together and say, so how would nature do this? I bet you we can come up with a pretty good model without much of an effort. Try that with human beings. Try that with social structures. And I don't think that we would be able to come up with such a more such an efficient model within a short period of time. And I've noticed also that a lot of people that have been spending more more time within this realm of circular economy, that they come to the same conclusion that the problem is not ecology. The problem is societal in our inequality. And if we're not able to solve this problem, we're not going to move we're not going to move on our problems and very often they are criticized because they are being they're being strange um, I think it depends on which type time of, of history you're talking about but they were not very accepted Whereas if they talk purely about ecology and small is now and permaculture and circular economy falls in quite well and within that or cradle, cradle to cradle falls in quite well there because we eliminate this human being part of it. We don't talk about human beings. We're talking about structures and we're talking about nature and we're talking about systems. But if we're not able to bring the human being into it, then what value does it have? It has no value, absolutely none. It's very interesting what you say because uh, <clears throat> it just came into my uh, head that uh, a lot of company uh, in where when they plan their marketing strategy, they always uh, looking into human emotions, how they can grab the attention and the emotions, and. We who try to make some change between uh, nature and economy, we don't see this part. We say, oh, marketing, wow, bullshit, but it's just a method and we shouldn't judge it. It's interesting. We should well, use. You know, I'm not going to disagree with you. You were part of the regenerative design sprint we did a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know if you had a chance to to look at what we did on the live stream, what I was trying to do was break down barriers. And one of the barriers that we have, apart from to empathize with human beings based upon that of what you said, is something that we know how to do because that's what they do in marketing. It's all about behavioral uh, analysis. It's about behavioral economics. But what if we were able to turn this one around and if we were to look at those forces that we use to go ahead and look at human beings and if we were to go ahead and take inanimate objects and perform the same exercise, what actually takes place there? And so what we did was we performed an experiment. We kind of started the um, in our first round in taking inanimate objects and trying to build some sort of emotions, not necessarily to a smartphone, I'm just using this as an example. But if we were able to take some inanimate objects and create um, 
some sort of emotional attachment to these these elements, then to what degree does that affect our behavior as human beings? And so we performed this exper experiment, I'm saying, we kind of threw this out here and said, I'll take this and you'll take that. And so what actually took place? I went through and performed an empathy map on a mountain. And the idea here was to go ahead and treat, and treat the mountain as if we would treat a human being. In other words, that the mountain has has thoughts, that the mountain has feelings, that the mountain is influenced by something, and that the mountain tries to deal with it in some fashion. In other words, task to be done. And I was looking at it primarily, well, I was looking from two perspectives. We had the two sprints. One was tied to data center. The other one was tied to food. And I think that the, the, it's quite obvious from the data center that the, the mining that's taking place within the mountains allows us to create to uh, extract the minerals, which are used later on the process for electronics. But from food, we get food from the mountains as well. And so there's a conflict already between getting those types of resources and getting uh, our food which very possibly could be a conflict within the mountain. But we never think of it that way because we're not, we don't put the focus on the mountain. So what we were trying to do was change the perspective, change the perspective the way that we looked at things to, um, to create emotions to uh, things, uh, inanimate objects, but actually are not that inanimate to begin with. And for people to look at things different. So that was the first one. And the second one, I, we had, um, there was a colleague who went ahead and performed the same exercise with a river. So how, what does the river think? How does the river feel? What's influencing the river? And how does the river deal with it? And then last, the last one was from a colleague who talked about something innate and olive. And she actually asked us to guess what she was talking about. And she described it in the form of a narrative and describing, so what was the life of, the, of this olive? And of course, if you have it on a pizza and you decide not to eat it, well, does that mean that the whole life of the olive meant nothing? So now we can go ahead and get people to start thinking that way about, a net, um, about objects that are not human now, to what degree can that actually go ahead and influence behavior and how we go ahead and attack these problems that we need to solve? Because going back to where we started, we started talking about nature, right? So these are all part of nature, correct? Now, if we can go ahead and change, turning things around, change the way human beings think about nature and understanding that, that, there, that there are certain there are certain perspectives that we need to take into consideration. What do you think the chances are of us actually changing hearts and minds within human beings if indeed they did not look at a mountain or a river or even an olive in the same way? I bet you, I bet you that we have a good chance of changing the way that people think about things. And that's good because I'm always keen on changing the way that changing the perspective of individuals. And then again, to close another loop, you talked about stakeholders. Now, if I talk about a certain stakeholder group that 
you might not necessarily know about. And if I can describe the stakeholder group in a way that you feel a little bit closer to them, what are the chances of us actually coming up with, with viable solutions? I would argue much higher. And so we really, what we need to do is bring the human element back into humanity and come up with ways to go ahead and describe these things in a much more efficient way so that we build that connection. That connection needs to be built. And if we're not able to do that, we shouldn't be surprised if we're not able to make any progress. And so, yeah, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. And I'm always trying to experiment in different ways to see to what degree I get the connection. Sorry, that was a very long explanation. Oh, it was great. It was a great answer. Thank you. Uh, how people can, um, uh, after the workshop, use all of this new knowledge in the practice or how do you plan uh, to keep uh, the track to be a continual flow with the people if uh, yeah. from the inclusivity point of view mm -hmm. i think you know me so far to say that i will not go ahead and say i have no interest quite the opposite i'm always interested so uh, the door is always open from my end so if you want to go ahead and show me something and get my opinion, yeah, of course I'm willing to go ahead and do that. Does that can that foster maybe new connections that we didn't even envision when we started that conversation? I have been proven. I, I I've received the proof over and over again through life that there's something there. And so whether you're open or not is really the key. And you can't force people to, to, to do things, but it's all kind of about trust. And trust is one of those things you need to reinforce over and over and over again. And it's, it's very interesting you're asking this question because I feel that I'm very much tied to all of these things constantly. I'm dealing with a couple things where my natural react—I have to—I have to calm myself down because my natural reaction will say, "Oh, come on, this is BS, and you shouldn't put up with this, and blah blah blah." But you know, people don't do things on a transactional way. There's always some—they all have a history. There's a reason why they do things, and we need to be able to go ahead and count to ten and and think about. So, you know, they have a story we don't know, and. Are we going to give them the opportunity to to do things in a way that that they feel they need to do it? And I think that's all part of empowerment too, right? And so if we're allowing people to be empowered, then that means that we're able to be inclusive. And it's not easy, but we have no choice. And I personally don't feel I have a choice, and so I just keep on going. I, 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 I think that we had a, an interesting group of people from different places in the world, and I think if we can start a dialogue between individuals that never would have talked to each other otherwise, that's a good thing. Yes, it's a very good thing. And I try to do that constantly. Uh, 
because for me, it's all about having the door open and in giving people and always thinking that people can are a force for good. And it doesn't always work, but it works more than it doesn't. And that's good enough for me. You live in Romania, which I think for me is a great example of, um, although it's more tied in my mind to intellectual resources instead of necessarily physical resources, although I know that you have plenty of oil because I, I, I live in a country that has a, a very strong company that exploits your your natural resources a lot, and that is the ONFO, who has a very strong representation in Romania. And you might not necessarily want to include that in your, well, it's truth, it doesn't matter. And if we look at the global south and we look at the, at what we're doing there, where we take resources that they could use for something else, and it's only to fit our needs. They grow things that they don't eat themselves only to meet our needs. They put things together to meet our needs and they can't use them. Now, if there was one, yeah, you know, the more I think about this is one message. If we were to get everybody to start thinking about what we have people doing just to go ahead and fulfill our needs, then to what degree can we go ahead and justify it? And I think that the, the beginning of the pandemic was a great example to show of those things that are being produced, I'm saying global south, not exclusive, but primarily, that they could not do anything with those things that were left within their within their domains because they don't need it they don't use it they don't need it has no value for them and we need to go ahead and break this dependency of them going ahead and supplying us with things and we consider that to be progress for them and for us and unless we're able to solve this problem we're not going to make any progress when it comes to circular economy, re regenerative design, whatever you want to call it, we're not going to make any progress. And so if there's one thing that we need to start working on is coming up with, with regenerative models for these areas of the world so that they can, that they become self-sufficient so that we can finally start weaning our way from, from this globalization model that is basically been the motor of all of this destruction. This was the Bloomberg Cross Podcast by MyraBase.com with Orsha Vita. Thank you for being here and listening to us. If you want to support us, Please let me know your thoughts about this episode or about the previous episodes. Just share with me what do you think, what you would prefer uh, to listen or not, with whom. And if you have any recommendation for the next episodes who I should invite, please let me know. It would help a lot to me. And 
thanks again for being here because um, for me it means a lot. Have a nice day and keep up the good work. Bye.